You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk and Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris. Thank you for downloading this show. I'm really excited about this podcast and the direction it's going. I want to um, really take the opportunity to uh, make it as as informative and useful as possible. I've said before that I'm going to start doing a lot of interviews, and I do have two interviews currently scheduled um, and hope to do more. And I'll start to also try to incorporate some other elements such as uh, a lot more questions from you guys. And one thing that you can do to help with that is to submit questions. And I've tried to make that really easy. You can go to my website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. And really on any page, but on the front page, it's really prominent, is a form that's just a two-section form. Your name and your question hit send, and it will go directly to... Uh, my email box, and I will use it for upcoming shows. And no question is too simple or complicated. It doesn't matter if you know very little about Bible prophecy and want to know something that you just haven't heard explained before, or if you have a relatively complicated question about something I've said or haven't said yet or or whatnot, I would love to uh, be able to make the podcast more useful and, and relevant to all of you by incorporating more questions because if one person has a question, it's probably another a question somebody else has. So uh, don't be bashful and send me your questions, and hopefully we'll, it'll contribute to making this podcast better. I've often thought about incorporating a news section, whether in this podcast, um, well, either one of these podcasts. But as far as just general news, I feel like it's being done and being done better by other people. It's important um, but this has never really been a news show, and I don't feel like trying to make it one just because it would be something. Um, as far as Bible prophecy news, that's another issue, I think. And But that's also being done. And when it's done, I feel like it's mostly just speculation and really fluff. I sort of grew up with the Hal Lindsey report and similar stuff that was out there. And a lot of that just never panned out. It wasn't... Uh, it was based on particularly the idea that the Gog Magog war was just around the corner. And so, you know, you look for some political machinations in Turkey or Russia or wherever they thought um, it was. And, you know, if anything happened at all, well, that was directly applicable to the Gog Magog war and it was all coming, coming down next week. But, you know, there's, there's very few things out there that I would consider. This is Bible prophecy news, you know, um, I would look for stuff like, um, you know, some 10 nation or 10 king nation or 10 nation confederacy subduing three of them. And one guy is coming to prominence and then starting some wars with Egypt and, you know, that kind of stuff. I'd be like, okay, we got, we got something going on here. Let's talk about it in a news situation. But that's directly applicable to Bible prophecy. The other stuff I feel like is just... It's been wrong so many times. It's ridiculous, but and I think it's been wrong because it's based on faulty presuppositions, particularly as I said about the Gog Magog War. But um, and nowadays Psalm 83. So any kind of Bible prophecy news, 
uh, that has anything to do with, let's say, a nation in the so-called Psalm 83 war, well, that's Bible prophecy about to f- be fulfilled, you know, and uh, regardless of if it's doing anything that's supposed to be said, you know, that's supposed to be done in the in the Bible, it's just, hey, look, something's in the news, or perhaps it's, you know, there's a peace agreement uh, being made or not being made or almost being made with Israel and the Pal- Palestinians or something like that. That's Bible prophecy news. Well, not really. I mean, they always try to tie it into the seven-year uh, covenant or, as they'll say, peace agreement and say, look, we know a peace agreement was, is coming and, you know, all this. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in this podcast, so I won't belabor the point. But, um, you know, even stuff like, hey, look, the temple is being, you know, if somebody's thinking about the temple or somebody is on the temple mount getting arrested or all these kinds of things. I mean, it's not really Bible prophecy news. I mean, yes, a, a temple is supposed to come in the future, uh, that the Antichrist is going to to sit in the temple one day, and that's that's something. But it's not news when, you know, somebody uh, somebody just talks about the temple or even builds one of the temple implements. There's still a long way from anybody building the temple, and um, and even if I mean I particularly think that the temple won't get built until the Antichrist shows up. So. So, I don't know. I mean, I suppose you should be watching for that in case that happens differently, but uh, which is, I suppose, possible. But anyhow, that it just seems like too much fluff to go searching for, you know, what's happening in Bible prophecy news. And I feel like it tends to lead people to the wrong conclusions. And so I'm going to refrain from that. So I'm going to mostly focus on these kinds of rants when possible. And... Um, doing a lot of interviews. I've got two of those scheduled and then hopefully a lot more coming in addition to your questions. And I want to try to make that a prominent part of this podcast. So please do submit your questions on the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. Another show note is I want to mention I've been in a kind of state of limbo for the past uh, month or so with uh, production uh, in general. I mean, I'm still doing all the necessary stuff uh, with the ministry stuff and evangelism and these kinds of things that uh, we've, we've always do, regardless of the projects that we're doing. But in terms of the projects themselves, I've kind of had to put a lot of it on hold because uh, with this upcoming book, False Christ, it's something that I've w- wanted to put out there for a long time and something that I feel passionate about and something that I want to do right. So I've gone the extra... Uh, mile in terms of the production of this book and and hired a professional editor and this whole process is something that's uh, a little new to me in in terms of having to wait i'm usually the kind of person that uh, you know wants to get it out put it out there whatever it is sacrifice a little quality if you have to and just be done with it and move on to the next project whatever that is and in this scenario i am having to go really slow be patient be okay with it not being out even though i'm you know, done writing it before. If this was me. I mean, it would have been out a month ago, but uh, going through the process, and I see the the validation uh, in in doing it right. I've always been like that. Uh, whether it was back in the in the music career days, I never wanted to work with a producer. You know, you don't need a producer. You just go into the studio, record your songs, and you know, get out. But uh, when we really worked with a professional producer, it was like that guy just changed everything for the better 
we need to work with producers. So, and so that's kind of the same idea here that it's this editor is making it a lot better. So I'm glad to to wait. But the problem is is that I want to do a number of things. First of all, I want to put this out in as many free ways as as I can because my goal is to get the information out. Certainly not to make money. If that was the case, I'm I'm doing it the wrong way. Let me tell you. But um, but one of those things I need to do is re-record everything in a new audiobook format with the new edited version. But I can't do that, of course, until the edited stuff is back. And I also want to make videos for everything in the book, make basically an audiobook and a video book. And, of course, I can't do the video until the audio is done, and I can't do the audio until the editing is back, and not to mention all the other details with getting the book out. So... It's a little frustrating for me, and it's going to take some time before this is done. And in addition to that, I also want to really put my best foot forward in terms of trying to get this information out there in whatever normal ways people do that after a book is out. Uh, It's not my favorite thing to do, but it's something I feel like, even if I never do it in the rest of my life, I need to, to try to do it with this. So... I hope to not bore too many of you on this podcast with this kind of information. I promise you we'll move on to other things. Um, and I'm trying to supplement this sort of one-tracked mind that I'm going to have for a while with this particular issue uh, with podcasts and interviews, as I've been mentioning, and your questions and so on to kind of mix it up and make sure we're not talking about the same stuff all the time. With that being said, let me talk about the same stuff all the time. So the other day I was looking for books about the Gog Magog War on Amazon. As I was thinking about putting out a, a short little free ebook about the Gog Magog War, because I just felt like there wasn't a lot of good information out there about it, but I was surprised to see a book by a guy named J. Michael Bird called, uh, let's see, what's the name of it here? I'm so sorry, I should have had this prepared. But it's called uh, Gog Magog Revisited, and it's by, again, a guy named J. Michael Byrd, subtitled Modern Myths and Theories versus Actual Bible Prophecy. And he basically has the exact same view I do, more or less, about the Gog Magog War, so I was sort of like, okay, good, somebody's got something out of there, out there about it, there's no need for me to, to reinvent the wheel. So, But in doing so, I actually looked up his other books, And he's got something out there about, uh, it's called The Beast, the Antichrist, and the Harlot Babylon. And in that, he kind of takes the Islamic Antichrist view and has a lot of things to say, particularly about the, the Jewish Antichrist view, which I more or less hold in the upcoming book, False Christ. Though I would, again, say that it's less about him being Jewish. I'm not I'm not dogmatic about whether or not he's actually a Jew. I do think that uh, there are some texts that support that he will, but he, in my opinion, will present himself as the Jewish Messiah, which I believe makes sense of virtually all the doctrines of the Antichrist that we have. And, of course, I've gone through that in previous podcasts and so on. But uh, he has a section here sort of contra the Jewish Antichrist view, and they're kind of typical things that people say about it. So I thought I would go through some of them one by one, and just kind of give the other side of the story to some of the things that he mentions. He first uh, goes to Genesis forty-nine sixteen through 17, and this is when Jacob in the Old Testament is, is making a prophecy about the last days to his sons. And when he comes to Dan, he says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel, 
Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backwards. And a lot of the early church, like Hippolytus and some others, uh, took this to mean that the Antichrist would be from the tribe of Dan. And Arthur Pink and others, who I, I mean, I, I don't even cite Arthur Pink in the in the book that I write. I do cite him one time about a completely different topic altogether, but um, I think that they were being a little too over-eager with this idea that the Antichrist would be from the tribe of Dan. I don't think that this verse is talking about this. The reason I mention it is that it's kind of the thing that he and other people lead with as sort of a straw man to make the whole argument look bad. In the book, I denounce this as saying, you know, I don't think this has anything to do with the Antichrist. A lot of people, of course, associate this idea of this serpent, by the way, um, that is biting a horse's heel so that the rider falls backwards, is connected to Genesis 3.15, where, um, you know, the the it bruises the heel of the the of Christ ultimately, but he will crush his head. And I make the the point in the book that in Genesis forty nine the serpent is biting the heel of the horse, causing the rider to fall backwards, which seems distinctly different from Genesis three, which says that the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman of course being Jesus Christ. So it doesn't seem even typologically to be the same, you know, concept just there's a serpent biting somebody and i think that they go further that is the early church and and uh arthur pink to say you know the the tribe of dan isn't mentioned in some of the lists and so therefore this is all we need to know and i think i think that in no case was this sort of the core reason people believed that the antichrist would present himself as the jewish messiah but it was sort of an extra argument that they threw in there that I feel that they were being too overzealous with. So I don't need this argument. In fact, I think it's it's wrong on several levels. I think if the Antichrist does present himself as the Jewish Messiah, he would almost certainly have to not just uh, be from the tribe of uh, Judah, but he would have to present lineage to uh, the house of David. And I go through that in some detail about you know, how can somebody even know that they're from the house of David? Where's the state of um, Jewish understanding about that today? And and all these other things. The false messiahs of the past, like Bar Kokhba and these others, have always tried to, uh, you know, make you know show some kind of proof that they were from the line of David. Although I don't think Bar Kokhba ever showed any proof. He just sort of claimed it. And they were all waiting to see if he was going to claim to be from the tribe of Joseph or the tribe of uh, of, De- uh, of Judah, because you know they believed that uh, there's two messiahs, and they were wondering which one he was going to claim to be. And he ultimately came out and said, "I'm from the tribe of Judah. I'm descended from David." And they were like, "Oh, great! This is the real deal." Then, not that they don't think that Joseph is the real deal, but just that he's sort of a not as um, not as important. Messiah figure. So anyway, to make a long story short, the leading contra argument against this, I believe, is a straw man. By pointing out that Genesis 49 and the serpent biting the heel of the horse is not directly applicable to the Antichrist, probably, it's not in any way diminishing this view. In fact, the as I mentioned, I don't endorse the view in the book, so I can safely throw this particular argument out. 
The next argument he makes, he says the following. Furthermore, it does not seem likely that a Jew will be the one making a covenant with the Jews, as in some kind of non-aggression treaty. Why would that be necessary? Why would the Jews be needing protection from one of their own? And how could one of their own give them such protection by making a treaty with them? According to Revelation 11.2, it is the nations, a term to indicate hostile Gentiles, which will be, quote, treading underfoot the holy city for the last half of the tribulation period, 42 months. Surely the covenant or treaty Daniel wrote about was one made with these threatening and eventually conquering Gentile nations, which Daniel clearly writes about. Um, okay, so I think, first of all here, we have this this unshakable Hal Lindsey hangover thing going on here of the idea that this is going to be a peace treaty, that the Antichrist is going to come in and, uh, you know, finally make peace between the Jews and the Islamic nations and allow them to rebuild the temple. He's going to be this, this amazing political guy who's going to find some way to do this. First of all, I have racked my brain about this, especially after learning more about uh, Islamic beliefs and so on, about any kind of situation that would make this okay with the Islamic nations. A guy coming to some kind of uh, agreement to say, oh yeah, it's fine that you um, go up there and, and sacrifice animals on the temple right next to the Dome of the Rock, or let alone, uh, you know, they would say right next to the Dome of the Rock, I would say probably they'll tear it down. But nevertheless, uh, any kind of situation that would make that okay, it's just not... Um, something that anybody can do, and that's where everybody comes up. Well, you're not anticipating this um, um, really great uh, um, uh, uh, political genius, and he's going to find a way. Well, okay, maybe I'll, I'll leave that open. But the point is here that I think that the covenant is is being misinterpreted as a peace treaty when, in fact, it just says he's going to make a covenant. And I make uh, a, a big point about this in the book, and in, in, saying that if you read what it's saying there in Daniel about this covenant that he makes with many, but in the middle of the week, he, you know, at, at in the beginning of the week, he's going to make this covenant, but in the middle of the week, he's going to stop sacrifices and offerings, which I make the point that it suggests that he starts the sacrifices and offerings at the beginning of this. And I also make the point that because of the way that it's translated and a lot of Bible versions you know, have this completely different, but I think that when you dig down, the idea is he's strengthening an already existing covenant, that there wasn't a covenant there that he then comes in and strengthens it. And this is, of course, what the Jews are, are waiting on for, they're waiting on a new covenant. The new covenant that we as Christians know and love is something that the Jews also believe is going to happen one day. Uh, they see Jeremiah 31, 31, for example, prophecies of the new covenant that we know uh, was implemented with Jesus Christ, they see that as something that one day the Messiah is going to come and make a new covenant with them. Of course, they see that new covenant as strengthening an already existing covenant. They see that one day the Messiah is going to come and allow them to practice the Mosaic laws, which primarily includes the sacrifices at the temple. So, so the Jewish people are waiting on the Messiah to come, build a temple, start the daily sacrifices. A covenant is like, in big, bright, flashing, neon lights, uh, the integral part of that idea. So I think in Daniel and everything you see subsequently about the Antichrist is indicative of that happening. The Antichrist comes and 
and, and sort of reinstitutes the Jewish uh, traditions, which they see as absolutely necessary for their um, uh, for their spiritual purification. Although, of course, there's lots of secular Judaism and other types of uh, modern Judaism that sort of explained away the need for that. But uh, when you get right down to it, they you know, our literal reading of the Old Covenant sort of requires all that stuff. So any anyway, the point is, is I think that the covenant is going to be that, a guy that is uh, able to do that. And then, as I go through in some detail in the book, that because he is a man of war, that's where the Antichrist came from. He He's a military man. He's not a political genius. He is a guy who has some ability. The Bible tells us it's supernatural ability empowered by the dragon or the god of fortresses. He's able to destroy nations in battle in an uncanny way that eventually cause uh, everybody to ev- to eventually sort of capitulate to him. So the argument I'm making is, is that when he makes this covenant, he will... Uh, he will do is what's he, what he wants to do, what they're expecting him to do. He will be, build the temple, and he won't care what the Muslims will do. And that, of course, explains Daniel eleven forty through forty five when you see all the Muslim nations attacking the Antichrist. And none of this makes sense with this peace agreement nonsense thing that we've uh, come up with. The entire Muslim world attacking the Antichrist at this point doesn't make sense unless you understand it in this way, in my opinion. And so. The Jews are okay with this. Now, the reason they don't build the temple now and do all this now is, of course, they're afraid of annihilation because if they do that, it will spark the dreaded uh, coalition of Arab nations. I mean, the one thing that Israel has had going for it for a while is that the Arab nations are not a cohesive whole. There's a lot of infighting between amongst themselves. And, and you know, in the past wars, that was one of the, the Arabs' great weaknesses is that they never could get together in a coalition. And there's been many attempts to try to unify that. But doing this, doing anything to the Dome of the Rock or building a temple on the Temple Mount would unify all these uh, Arab nations and then become a, a extremely potent threat, probably an insurmountable threat, to the Jewish nation itself. So they don't do that because they're afraid. But if a man who has the kind of military ability that the Antichrist will comes in and says, look, I'm the Messiah, you know what I can do in war, and you know there's nobody that's going to threaten us, this is the covenant we're making, build the temple, start the sacrifices, I'll deal with them. And that's exactly what he does do. He completely destroys the rest of them. And as I argue in the book, it's the destruction of the enemies at that point that he is using to validate his claim to be the Messiah. Because one of the primary, if not the primary thing, one of the reasons that the Jews rejected Jesus uh, is because they didn't believe that he uh, destroyed the enemies of Israel, which he didn't in his first coming, but he certainly will in his second. But the point is that the Jews are waiting for a Messiah that destroys the enemies of Israel. And in the current context and for the foreseeable future, that will be the Islamic nations that surround them. So by the destruction, by causing this conflict, by starting the temple sacrifices and forcing the Muslim nations to attack him, which they do in Daniel 11, 40 through 45, and his complete destruction of them that we also see in that passage, it's a clear validation as far as the they see it and the world sees it, that he is who he claims to be, and he has done what the Messiah was supposed to do, which was 
destroy the enemies of Israel. So it's win-win for him uh, that uh, that they attack because they're no match for him. He's got supernatural war-making capabilities, and the end result is his apparent validation of his messianic claims, though that's, of course, not true. So, yeah, I don't... Uh, I, I see this completely different. So uh, when he says, well, it can't be a Jew making a peace agreement with the Jews, well, it's because you're seeing this covenant as a peace agreement when it's really a covenant and not a peace agreement. And I think that it's just a misinterpretation of, of the entire passage, which is exceedingly common. A uh, quick note on this. He says the idea of treading underfoot the holy city, the Gentiles, uh, in the last three and a half years, treading underfoot the holy city. There are a lot of ways to take this, and I would like to do some more uh, work on this. But uh, I think that the uh, initial way to see this is... Um, well, there's two two things that are happening. I think at the end, uh, or very very near the end of the 70th week of Daniel, there is a attacking of the uh, of Jerusalem by the ten kings, and they ravage the city, as Zechariah says, and do a lot of things that are are said there in Revelation 17 and 18 as well. But the three and a half year treading underfoot the holy city, I am almost positive, is is talking about, and I guess I'm sort of presupposing a lot of you know the events that I laid out in Mystery Babylon when Jerusalem embraces the Antichrist. But his his main goal is to make Jerusalem seem as if it is the uh, millennial Jerusalem, as far as Christians understand it, or the kingdom age as the Jewish people understand it. And in, or, in order to do that, you need to make it seem like, for example, a lot of the prophecies in Zechariah and Isaiah and Jeremiah, etc., etc., have come true. And the key component of making that look true is that you have to have a pilgrimage system of Gentiles flowing to the temple, in this case, probably the image of the beast that's sitting in the temple uh, permanently, and making uh, oblation to that uh, uh, image, and in this case, and I think that's what Mystery Babylon is all about, is you know pe- the the lists of items that people are bringing to it and so on and so forth. Anyway, the point is is that there is a worldwide Gentile pilgrimage system that will begin after the midpoint uh, that will that will have the world, the Gentile world, uh, streaming into Jerusalem consistently, making the people selling the items to her to to commit this worship of very rich and so on and I go through all that stuff in great detail in the book uh the mystery babylon book so the tramp the as it says in he, here treading underfoot the holy city is the gentiles uh treading underfoot in this great pilgrimage uh, to Jerusalem to worship the antichrist um but uh again that needs some more work uh but that's my initial view of that Okay, the next point he makes is the following. The beast of Revelation 13 from which comes the Antichrist is said to be coming up out of the sea, which in Revelation is symbolic of Gentile nations or masses. Then the beast is described in terms of other symbolic beasts, all of which are defined for us in Daniel's prophecy as past Gentile empires, the Babylonian, Medo-Persian, and Alexandrian empires. We are told in Revelation 17 that it is some combination of these previous kings. Okay, so... First of all, this idea, he says, the beast uh, is, in Revelation 13, is coming out of the sea, which in Revelation is symbolic of Gentile nations or masses. 
Um, I would take exception to that. I mean, if you do a word search of all this, of all the uses of this Greek word "see" in Revelation, um, you won't find anything that describes it as being Gentiles. In fact, almost everything except for this particular verse is just talking about the sea. There is, but at the same time, I won't say you know it's not. But it's whenever you make a case based on an allegory like this, like. You know, every time Jesus uses water, it's talking about life. So just go, so there's the use of water, it must mean life. And you can get into really wacky doctrines when you start to make doctrine based on what your interpretation of an allegory is, despite that allegory being defined by Scripture. If Scripture said that in Revelation or anywhere else, that when we refer to see, it's speaking of Gentiles, then that would be one thing. So... Even if this is totally correct, and he has the correct view of, of the sea being the Gentiles, which I'll argue in a minute, it doesn't matter. But even if he's correct, uh, it's still a very uh, dangerous way to interpret Scripture. This is how cults get started. Because there is no dictionary of allegories, you have to have somebody tell you what every allegory means when they aren't described in Scripture. And you can get in... That's how people use the Bible to say things that the Bible doesn't say. That's the primary way that it happens, is by interpreting allegories by a pontiff. So I don't agree with the premise that he says here that in Revelation, this is symbolic of Gentile nations. That's just not true. There is no way to prove that. It's just a belief that is held. But on the other hand, the further argument that the beast uh, that's, that's, uh, that we see in Revelation 13, this amalgamation beast, is representative of Gentile nations. I don't. I don't base that on Daniel seven, as I have a slightly different view of that, um, called the contemporaneous beast view, that I described in that uh, that uh, commentary in Daniel and subsequent video. But it's not necessary to hold to that view. I actually believe that he comes from Gentile nations, based on Daniel eight, and other places. So my point is that even if I accepted this premise that uh, he has to come from uh, a Gentile nation because uh, C means Gentiles, which I don't. But if I did, it's we're still in the same place. I agree that he's going to come from one of the four Alexandrian empires, whether that's Greece, Thrace, uh, the Ptolemaic Empire, or the Seleucid Empire, or whatever. Somewhere around there is where he's going to rise to power, one of those places. And so, therefore, my point is, is that this doesn't negate the idea that he will present himself as the Jewish Messiah or even be Jewish just because he rises to power in another place. You don't have to, you don't have to rise to power in Israel to be Jewish or to present yourself as the Jewish Messiah. And uh, so anyway, that's, this is again a kind of like the first one. It's sort of a straw man argument. Just because he comes to power somewhere else doesn't mean that he can't A, be a Jew if that's the case. Or it certainly doesn't mean that he can't claim to be the Jewish Messiah. But the next thing he says is this. Then we have the prototype given in Daniel 11, which is easily identifiable as Antiochus Epiphanes, a Gentile ruler of Greek descent ruling over the Syrian Mesopotamian region. So he's saying, since the type of Antichrist in Daniel 11 was Antiochus Epiphanes, then the Antichrist needs to be basically exactly like Antiochus Epiphanes. The problem with this is that it must disregard all the other obvious types of Antichrist in Scripture. So, for example, let's take some of the other obvious ones like uh, uh, the King of Babylon or the King of Tyre, both of which are clear 
types of Antichrist, particularly the King of Babylon. You could even go to others like uh, uh, Pharaoh in Egypt or um, Nebuchadnezzar or um, Sennacherib in Assyria. These are all completely different kingdoms, different uh, places, and each one can be demonstrated to be a type of Antichrist, just as Antiochus was a type of Antichrist. So are we then to try to deal with all these contradictory backstories for types of Antichrist and just say, let's only pay attention to Antiochus as a type of Antichrist and disregard the others, and then we'll know where he's from. If, if I think this is also problematic in looking at what Antiochus does in terms of the way that he defiled the temple, etc. I think this happens sometimes when people... Uh, see what what Antiochus, for example, did, which was sacrifice a pig on the altar, uh, do a lot of different things like that in that are specific to Antiochus, and say, well, that's exactly what the Antichrist will do. Are we then to expect the Antichrist to sacrifice a pig on the altar when he uh, commits the abomination of desolation? No, uh, I don't think that we are. We are told what the Antichrist does. He sets up an image of himself that will be able to kill people that don't worship it and a whole bunch of other stuff that you just cannot equate with Antiochus Epiphanes. The, we are told what exactly the Antichrist does that causes the abomination. Now, the the image that he sets up is uh, is probably central in that abomination, but it's it, it seems to give more weight to what he does either as he's setting up the, the, the idol, uh, or I, I kind of envision this as sort of the inauguration ceremony of the idol, he is when he's declaring himself to be God in the temple. That's ultimately the abomination, is that, is that he is cre- committing this great blasphemy uh, by declaring himself to be God in the temple, um, which is not something that Antiochus did. Now, people go into all kinds of detail and say, well, you know, on the coins, Antiochus Epiphanes means God manifest and all these other things. Well, you can kind of draw some comparisons there, but Antiochus did not do what the Antichrist is said to do. My point is that you can't have this be, a, a for lots of reasons, a one-to-one comparison. This person is trying to say, look, Antiochus, who's a type of Antichrist, is from Greece. So, case closed. Now, I again, I have to argue that it's possible that the Antichrist could be from Greece. This could have something to do with that um, or not, I don't know. I mean, I, I tend to think it's a pretty good bet that he you know, could be from around that region. It's certainly one of the four uh, empires of, of the Alexandrian Empire, so I have no problem with that from a biblical standpoint. I don't think it's clear where he's going to be from. Antiochus was probably more from uh, the, the, the Ptolemaic Empire, which would be uh, uh, Syria is where he actually ruled, so I think the initial premise of this person is, is wrong, though he did uh, have Greek descent, I suppose. Um, anyway, lots of details there. All that to say that it's you can't look at one type of the Antichrist and say that's exactly what the Antichrist is going to be. Otherwise, we would all know that the Antichrist is going to be from uh, Tyre in Lebanon, and or, or from he's going to be from Babylon, or he's going to be from Assyria, or he's going to be uh, in this case, from Greece. So, you know, you just can't, you can't do that. He says, what would the Ten Nation Coalition led by such a person be if he was a Jew? Um, I'm not sure how this applies. First of all, I'm not sure that uh, it's going to be a Ten Nation Coalition. It could just as easily be, by the text, a nation, one nation that has ten kings. But uh, whether you take it as, I think it could 
be both ways. I don't know which, but let's say it's a ten nation coalition led by a Jew. Why why couldn't it be a Jew? I mean, what what would prevent a Jew from leading a ten nation coalition, or what would prevent a, a person of Jewish descent from ruling another nation somewhere over there with ten kings? It's just no no reason why a Jew couldn't do that. So I'm not sure what uh, he's meaning by that argument, but uh, let's move to the next one. He says, How could a Jewish Messiah figure be said to be carried to power on the back of the harlot Babylon, whom he then attacks and destroys? Well, of course, I see Mystery Babylon as the city of Jerusalem, who in the end times embraces the Antichrist. It's a harlot because... It should know better. It has a true husband, but it is committing adultery, in this case, with the Antichrist, whom she is riding. Um, she says in Revelation 18 that she has found her husband and her king. You know, she, she is rejoicing in that she has seemingly found this, uh, this king at last and her husband. But it's not a true husband. She is uh, committing adultery with her true husband. She's carried to power in the sense that Jerusalem is made the capital city of the world, by the Antichrist, in, in his attempt to fulfill um, the prophecies about Jerusalem being the capital city of the world in the millennium, or the kingdom age. So the primary thing that she is happy about and being really wealthy about is that um, she, is in, she is the capital city of the world. All nations are streaming to him. All wealth is streaming to, to Israel in the end times during this time that the Antichrist is uh, claiming that he is the Messiah and also God. So that's why she is carried to power by the Antichrist. There's certainly no reason why a Jewish person couldn't do that, especially uh, in light of this uh, interpretation, which uh, I think is correct. But the other part of this is uh, then he attacks and destroys the woman. So the Antichrist at the end of Revelation 17 and 18 uh, turns these ten kings on the city of Jerusalem and destroys her. Exactly what is prophesied in Zechariah 14, right at the beginning there. So, what's going on there? And I think that uh, it's just what it says. The Antichrist will, towards the end of the 70th week of Daniel, I would make the case, based on Revelation 17 and 18 and 16 also, that he is that he turns on Jerusalem at the very end by sicking these uh, ten kings who have been prepared for doing that exact thing on the city of Jerusalem. So he uh, turns his back on her and uh, at the very end. And I think one of the reasons that his view changes right towards the end of the 70th week, maybe even after the 70th week, um, because there is a 30-day period afterwards and even a 45-day period after that, according to Daniel's uh, uh, mentioning of, of the different days, uh, amounts of days after the midpoint. But in any case, I think that it's clear that Jesus is on the Mount of Olives with the 144,000 before the bowls are poured out, at which case the Antichrist has, has hardly anything to do but try to gather these nations together to go to war against the descent of Christ. At that point, and for all intents and purposes, his gig is up. He, his three and a half years is is almost up. The the facade, in a lot of ways, is gone, and he attacks Jerusalem. And I think one of the re- reasons he does that is because one of the primary purposes of Jesus on the Mount of Olives at that point, uh, is, and as he splits it in two and makes a way for an escape for the uh, apparently the 144,000, and I would also argue the other one-third of 
national Israel that has uh, heeded the warning of the two witnesses to get out of the city before he pours the bowls out. And so because, in a sense, Jesus at this point has already reclaimed Jerusalem, um, though it is essentially not under the Antichrist's control at that point, and then he attacks it with the Ten Kings. I'm not exactly sure how that happens, but the point is that I don't disagree with this. You can have it all these ways. I think it's a necessary thing that you have to believe, is that um, is that not only does, whatever way you look at it, this city that is at one point really happy with the Antichrist, the Antichrist turns on her towards the end. And it doesn't matter what view of Mystery Babylon you have, you have to incorporate that into it. And there's no reason to say that this doesn't make sense in a Jewish context or any other context. It's just it's just doctrine. It's just what's supposed to happen. And that was the end of his argument, so I will leave it there. I may pick up this thread at a later date if I receive more criticisms or uh, uh, just good questions about this particular issue. I encourage you to submit them if you're interested at the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. It's not something I'm really looking forward to. That is, um, dealing with the fallout once this book comes out. Because, number one, a lot of people... It's difficult for me to mention some of this stuff to people. I, when people ask me about books that I write, you know, I might mention the sleep paralysis book or something like that. But in, in polite company, I don't tell people this because I guess I'm a little uh, afraid of what people think of, about me. It's funny, when I watch videos of the few people that hold this theory, when they, when they say it, they immediately have to follow it up with, you know, I'm not anti-Semitic. This isn't an anti-Semitic thing. I love Israel. I would, you know, walk through fire for Israel. It's not. It's not about that. There's such a, a necessary sort of caveat when you when you make a the, uh, 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 this point. So, so it's not fun. And I was thinking the other day about um, the possibility of of presenting this book to other publishers. And I was looking at some of the publishers out there that might publish Christian prophecy books. But this is like nobody would want to publish this and to put this out there with their stamp of approval on it. It's just too, um, it's just too controversial and it will make, it will alienate people. It will make, it will lose fans of your publishing company or your podcast or whatever. It's like the fast track to, um, thinning the herd. And so it's not something that I have, uh, you know, embraced in that sense, but it's also something that I think, needs to be said and said articulately and not in uh, uh, a way that is uh, disrespectful or um, sensational. So for that reason, because I am going to self-publish this, this, it's going to require a lot of promotion on my part, as I mentioned. So I ask you to bear with me as I um, will be doing that over the next few months. And I also would just want to briefly say that I think this is important. A lot of people, um, especially those concerned about, you know, the timing of end times events, the rapture and things like that, it's really important to figure those things out. But if you consider things like the doctrine of the Antichrist, those things that we know about the Antichrist, they're all about this kind of stuff. They're all, obviously, the amount of time that the Bible spends on the details of the Antichrist, not just the timing of the Antichrist, that's arguably a very minimal uh, aspect of the doctrine, but the nature what he does, how he does it, why he does it, uh, where he comes from. These are things that the Bible uh, says a lot about. And therefore, it's important. Uh, Jesus was really 
concerned about this figure. It was somebody that he warned us about in the most grave terms. And he, even that uh, phrase in Matthew 24 when he says, See, I have told you beforehand, it was, it was talking about the false Christ and false prophets that do great wonders and could deceive the very elect. It's, he, that's what he wanted to know. Look, I've told you that beforehand, so pay attention. But this is going to happen. There's going to be a false, false Christ and false prophet. And some people, by the way, a little caveat, they will say, well, Jesus is talking about plural Christs and plural false prophets. Well, that's true, though I would also argue that he says, look, he, here is the Christ, uh, in referring to it as a singular uh, person, but in, uh, I think, an even better argument that his his reference there to false Christ and false prophets is primarily about this singular false Christ and singular false prophet is because uh, Paul in Second Thessalonians takes the information that Jesus told us about the false Christ and false prophets takes it almost word for word and applies it to the Antichrist who will sit in the temple, declare himself to be God, show great signs and wonders, all the rest of it. He takes all the stuff that Jesus was talking about in terms of false Christ and false prophets and, and says that this is what we need to worry about. The Antichrist sitting in the temple doing great signs and wonders or whatever. So Paul interprets the what Jesus is saying as uh, whatever else it might be, other false Christs and other false prophets in the end times, it is primarily about the false Christ who will do the things that he laid out uh, and then also Daniel and the Lord lays out. So, all that to say that I think this is important. This stuff is there for a reason and I feel like a lot of stuff out there about this that is trying to make sense of the information that we have is inadequate, has a lot of baggage um, that they're bringing to the table with this stuff, kind of seeing it through those goggles. Trust me, if I was seeing this through goggles, I would see a different, <laughs> a different uh, 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 view. I, you know, before this, I kind of gravitated towards a lot of other things. At one point, I believed the Islamic Antichrist thing, and then I kind of gravitated towards the alien, uh, something to do with alien Antichrist thing, and you know, none of those lined up. This was something that is not something that I wish was true, it's something that I have a conviction that it is true. And so I ask for your sympathy, even if you don't uh, agree with it, that uh, it is something that I am uh, genuinely and hesitantly um, uh, uh, endorsing. Okay, that's enough for today. Uh, thanks for listening. I want to remind you about uh, going to the website Bible Prophecy Talk and submitting your questions. If you have any at all about any aspect of Bible prophecy, it will definitely help the podcast in the future. And I will hope to have some interviews out pretty soon. I don't know how quickly they will be uh, shelled out. It does take a little bit of preparation for interviews, but I hope to keep them coming. And thank you for your time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. 
reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.